uh, Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God's intent was to directly communicate um, to Moses, and in turn, he would communicate to the Israelites the laws, the commandments of God. It was quite a striking situation, and I'll tell you what, take a look at this little video to give us a little, little bit of a sense of what it was like. It was a striking time, kind of surprises me. I, I would have thought that the experience would be different. I, I mean, they're meeting with God. He's going to speak to them. He's going to communicate good things to them, his guidelines for living. And yet the whole experience was rather dark and ominous and gloomy and threatening. And, well, it was a terror, the peals of thunder, the lightning, the trumpet sound. And so I began to think, if I could be honest, I don't think I like Mount Sinai very much. And I wish there was a better mountain. And there is. God actually has a better mountain for us, even than Mount Sinai. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight as we continue our study in Hebrews, which we've termed the letter of better. It's stock full of better things. In this case, we're going to find out about a mountain that is far better than any other mountain. And so to do this, let me call your attention to chapter 12 of Hebrews. We're making progress. We're in chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 18. And we'll find out about this far better mountain even than Mount Sinai. Here's what it says, Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you, so we have to pause right there to remind ourselves who the you is. Who are the recipients of this letter? There's a writer and there are readers. And the readers, as I've mentioned in times past, are Hebrews, hence the name of the book. But there's a mixed group of Hebrews. Some were believers in Jesus as their Savior, their Messiah. Others only identified with him in word, but not in lifestyle. They were dabbling in following the Lord Jesus. They weren't actually sure they were ready to commit. And the writer of Hebrews, used by God, because God is so good, wants to give many warnings to these who are on the verge, these who only profess Christ. They're on the verge of going back to Mount Sinai, to the old ways, and to the first covenant. And the writer wants to warn them, don't do it. Now, they're tempted to do it, in this case, because there was persecution of those named by Christ. And these who were only professing believers, not real believers at all, were saying, you know, the benefits of following Christ are really minimized in light of the persecution which is coming my way. I think I want to go back to the old ways, fit in. I like that old Good old-time religion where I could take credit for my approach to God, and I didn't need to be quite so dependent on his kindness and on his grace. So it's to them who this is written. For you, says the writers, have not come to a mountain that can be touched. He's saying to them the experience of these ancient Israelites their predecessors was much different. He's saying, you've come to a certain kind of a mountain, not like the one they came to. They came to a mountain 
Mount Sinai, which can be touched. In other words, it's literal, it's real, it's material, it's earthly, it is tangible. He's saying to them, you've come to a far better mountain. He hasn't named it yet, but he's simply saying at this point, your mountain, the one that you have the opportunity of coming to, is far better than the one they came to. They came to a a mountain that can be touched. And they also came to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Folks, if you could imagine it, the ancient Israelites encamped at the base of Mount Sinai were feted to a sight and sound experience on steroids. This is far more than anything that they had imagined. I don't think they imagined this at all. All of these things, fire and darkness and gloom, were designed to conjure up a sense of holy sanctification because God had established for a while his holy presence on this otherwise common and ordinary mountain. They may have been able to access it under different circumstances, but once God came down to establish himself for a while on this mountain, they realized, oh my goodness, He's not my co-pilot. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's transcendent deity. He's Elohim. He's the God most high. And in comparison to him, I shrink away in fear. So that was their experience. And it was accentuated by this, verse 19. They came to the blast of a trumpet. You heard a little sampling of the shofar. Their fearfulness increased as the intensity of the shofar, the trumpet blast, also increased in volume. But this wasn't the only fearful sound they experienced. It says, and the sound of words, even more than the thunder and the lightning, even more than the fire and the trumpet blast, I think what terrified them more than anything were words, the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. It was such a fearful enterprise that they they said to the speaker, enough, enough, and whose voice is it? It was the voice of an invisible speaker who shouted forth loudly and clearly in a very dramatic way in the midst of all else that is going on. Well, it was the voice of God himself. And what was he saying to them? He was communicating to them his requirements, his sanctified laws, his commandments. And as he went through one at a time, you can see them caving in more and more. They thought they were okay. And each time they heard a commandment, they realized, we're not okay. We're in trouble. He is holy. We are unholy. And so they said, no more, no more. Please don't speak to us about your word any longer. And they were overwhelmed by it all to such extent that we're told in verse 20, they couldn't bear the command. If even a beast, an animal, touches the mountain, it will be stoned. That was the command God gave. Don't come near. The whole idea is the unapproachability of a holy God. 
The Israelites thought they could be on familiar terms with him based on their own merit and virtue. They found out as he rehearsed his commandments to them, they had no inherent merit or virtue. In fact, they had an inclination to be lawbreakers. They were sinners, don't you see? And God said to them, erect a fence, keep your distance. Though this is a mountain which can be touched, it must not be touched. It's real, it's physical, it's tangible, it's within reach, but you better not reach out for it lest you die. If, the Israelites heard, if even an animal would perish, if it accidentally wandered too close to the mountain, then what fate might be theirs? An animal is not a deliberate sinner. An animal is not a breaker of the laws of God. They realized we are free agents. We are moral beings. God said, thou shalt not and we did again and again and again. And so they said, if this is going to be the, feet, uh, the, the fate of an innocent animal, then we don't have a chance. We surely will die too. And so the whole notion of an approach to God was a distasteful, impossible, improbable, fearful enterprise. We can't get close to this God who terrifies us just in the mere power of his words. We must keep our distance. There was no hint of come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. There was stay away, keep your distance. You are unholy. How dare you think on your own you could access me? What is your bridge? What is the connecting leak? On what basis do you come? You have none. The law is good, but you are not. You can't cross over the law and get to me. Therefore, keep your distance. Well, this is the people, you know, the mass of Israelites. But what about their leader, Moses? Surely he's in a different category. Moses is the fellow who witnessed things like the burning bush. Surely he can handle all this, right? No. Look at verse 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Folks, it doesn't matter who you are. When you stand in the presence of Almighty God and find yourself within earshot of his law, you are terrified. Anybody would be. And what was most terrifying was simply the recitation of God's righteous, moral, ethical requirements for life. That terrified them more than anything, his law. Does that mean the law of God is bad? No, it isn't bad, it's good. But we are not good. And the law really, really shows that. It's like a mirror, isn't it? Reflecting, God says, thou shalt not lie. And having lied, now I know I am a liar. And God said, thou shalt not steal. And having appropriated that which is not my own, now I realize I am a thief. And when God said, you must not even have a desire for that which is not legitimately yours, when I do, I realize <gasps> I covet. There's nothing wrong with the law. It just points out all that's wrong with me. It's a mirror. So not too long ago, I woke up, and uh, 
do you do this? This is a big mistake. Uh, you should not make the first thing in the morning when you wake up your visit to the mirror. So I did this. I should know better. And it was like there was a strange person in that mirror, an oogly person. I mean, it was, my hair was like all, it was just, what, like Brillo pad. It was just, and then I guess because of the way I slept, there was like a big, like a crease right over there. Have you ever had one of those deals? It's like you aged overnight, like to the max. And I had, there was a little bit of a drivel thing going on <laughs> over here. And I had a big old red spot. You know, you lie on this thing. The big old, oh, I'm sick, I thought. It was a big, it was big bags, you know, under my eyes. Who knows? It was just a terrible. So I did the very logical thing. I'm sure you agree. I, I got a towel and some duct tape, and I covered up the mirror. <laughs> and then it really solved the problem. No, it didn't. I was still... I was still ugly at that time of day. And so I went into the garage and I took more extreme measures and I got me a hammer. And I was on the verge of smashing the mirror. And then, oh, no, it's not the mirror's fault. It's me. It isn't the law's fault. It's me. It shows me what's wrong with me and every time God recited one of his strictures I saw more and more blemishes and flaws and unpleasantness and lack of attraction and displeasing characteristics to almighty God and I could dismiss the law and try to obliterate it deny it and ignore it try to cover it up with a few good things here or there but it does not clean me up. It does not save me. It does not absolve me of the responsibility to comply with God's righteous law. So the law is good. Its purpose was to provide on Mount Sinai the knowledge of sin. At Mount Sinai, it very effectively did. But what about the knowledge of salvation? Mount Sinai failed miserably in doing that. Mount Sinai was, was very effective in revealing the distance between holy God and sinful humankind. And in so doing, it produced a feeling of conviction and of condemnation and of darkness and of fear and of gloom and of hopelessness. And I don't like that mountain. And I feel like crying out, oh God, don't you have a better mountain for us? And the answer is yes. Verse 22. But you... That was the them, the ancient Israelites. But you have come to Mount Zion. <laughs> you got there through Mount Sinai. Everyone has to. But you didn't stay there. Don't go back there. You've come to Mount Zion. It's a hill in Jerusalem. But it came to be a representative name for the entire city uh, of Jerusalem. And what is significant about Mount Zion is that that was the locale of God's gracious provision of a sacrificial system. God said, you know something? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. 
And so God said, climb up to Mount Sinai, you who have sinned against me, you lawbreaker. Bring your lamb, your unblemished male lamb without defect. Lay your hands upon it and let the priest take it from there. Repeat after the priest, oh God, this innocent being in my place, please accept this innocent being as my substitute for I have sinned. I have broken your law. Oh, God, put the penalty on this innocent animal instead of me. And then the priest would go, and its blood would be outpoured. And you would go home, head up and shoulders back, to live another day, pardoned, forgiven. Mount Zion, the place of substitutionary sacrifice. I need to tell you something. No such thing at Mount Sinai. Nobody was permitted to bring a sacrifice all that happened was Mount Sinai was that the person was confronted with law. But on Mount Zion, the lawbreaker was confronted with grace. You realize the ultimate unblemished lamb offered as a substitute for sin is none other than the Lord Jesus. If you have come to him, you have come to Mount Zion. You have left Mount Sinai. Don't do this. Do that. You have ceased being troubled by the inconsistency in your own life, as with Paul. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. And that which I want to do, I find myself not doing. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. If you have found Christ Jesus to be the gracious substitute for your sin, you're at Mount Zion. And by the way, we're not just talking about Jerusalem, the geographical place in the Middle East, are we? Oh, no, far better than that. Look, read on. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. King David was there. You know what he did? He brought with him the Ark of the Covenant in which were the commandments God gave on Mount Sinai. As a result of the Ark of the Covenant being in this place, God established his presence there. And it has been known as the dwelling place or city of God. What's significant about it? If you're a resident of a city, <laughs> that's where you live. And that means every resident of that city could have access to every other resident. If this is the city of God and you're in it, you have access to God, who at Mount Sinai you had no access to. The theme of Mount Sinai was distance and the unapproachability of God. And now God said, are you looking for me? You can find me. Have you come to Mount Sinai? Have you laid your hands on the unblemished Lamb of God, my only begotten Son? You can commune with me. You can have your citizenship in the very place of my abode. And not only that, it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you see that? Heavenly Jerusalem. I really look forward to going to earthly Jerusalem. I get a lot out of it. And so I like to go. But it's nothing in comparison to the heavenly Jerusalem. Look, Mount Sinai was described as the mountain that can be touched, right? This is the mountain that can't be touched. Why not? Because you cannot access heavenly Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, with your senses. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. It's far better. It's out of this world. 
It is beyond the realm even of your own imagination and senses. It is eternal. It is spirit. You know what heavenly Jerusalem is? It's that very place John wrote about in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And the text says, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come to heavenly Jerusalem. Even though you're still here, your citizenship is there. And not only that, you've come to myriads of angels. What? Thousands, innumerable, can't count them. Tons of angels. They were there at Mount Sinai to do what? Strike fear into the Israelites but not in the heavenly Jerusalem. You know what they're there for? To join with you in worship of Almighty God. There won't be fear of angelic beings in heavenly Jerusalem. We surely will not worship them. Better, we will worship with them. Another passage from Revelation chapter 5, 11 and 12. Then I looked, John said, I heard the voice of many angels. Here you go again, a myriad of angels. Around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb. That's worship. When you attribute worth to the lamb, that's called worship. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Terror has vanished. Celebration has been ushered in. Fear has fled. Joy is the experience of those who've been to Mount Zion. And when they come to Mount Zion, they come, according to verse 23, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Folks, though you and I, Christians, are still here, if we've been to Mount Zion, that's where we, by faith, laid our hands on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. If we've done that, though we're still here, our names are already enrolled in heaven. Did you know that? We're in the Lamb's Book of Life, inscribed. And we're part of a new community, the likes of which you and I can't hardly imagine. It's called the Church of the Firstborn. In every family, only one child can claim that. The one born first is the firstborn. In the old economy, biblical times, the firstborn inherited special privileges, inheritance rights. But if you've been to Mount Zion, if you've laid hands on the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been adopted by faith into his family so that you are a son, a daughter amongst brothers and sisters, every single one is the firstborn in terms of privileged position, special position, and the guarantee of your inheritance rights. You, if you're a Christian, are a member of the church of the firstborn. Whatever other hand life may have dealt you, 
Look at what God has made available if you've been to Mount Zion, a member of the church of the firstborn. And you come, the text says, to God, the judge of all. Oops. That kind of puts a damper on things. We were on a roll. Judge? How's that a good thing? So here's the deal. God does not change. So he was the same holy judge on Mount Sinai that he is on Mount Zion. But here's the difference. If you've accepted the ultimate sin substitute, the Lord Jesus, then the judgment of God will not land on you because it has already been put upon him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you remember that? That's judgment by his Father upon him for you and me. You see? That's why we don't have to fear the judge. Look, here's the deal. Every single person is going to be judged by God, but not on the same basis. Some will be judged by God according to grace. Others will be judged by God according to law. Which is it for you? If you choose to be judged by God according to law, scriptures say you must comply with all of the law. I can prove to you even as we sit here, you haven't. Isn't it better to have God, when you stand before him, evaluate you, not on the basis of Mount Sinai, but on the basis of Mount Zion, grace, I see that you are a lawbreaker. How do you plead? Guilty. And then the son, our intercessor, an advocate, stands in the gap and says, Father, indeed, that one has spoken truthfully. That one is a lawbreaker. But I fulfilled the law entirely and suffered and died for that one's sin. And at the end, Father, I proclaim, it is finished. The debt is canceled. Oh, God, what is your decision? Case dismissed. You see it? What is the basis upon which you're going to be judged by God? Either the law or grace. There's no in between. And this judgment of God has the capacity to separate you or I forever from what it says next. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who are the righteous? Those who are in right standing with God. Made perfect? Sinless? No. The word perfect means complete. How could it be said that the spirits of these righteous is now complete? Because they're completely in the presence of Almighty God. That's when we find our completion. He is the goal. He is our destination. When? Being in right standing with him by faith, we make it home to heavenly Jerusalem. We will have perfectly arrived at our destination. Why does it say the spirits of the righteous? Because it's a reference to those who've been to Mount Zion and have passed on before you and I. Where are their bodies? They don't need them. They get better bodies. So the scripture says to be absent from the body 
present with the Lord. They left upon death. They left their bodies here, and they went home. The essence of their being is their spirit. These, these are the spirits of the righteous made perfect, made whole, made complete because they're completely in the presence of the Lord. And all we are doing is waiting our turn. And this is our destiny if we've been to Mount Zion. And not only one day will we be with them. Verse 24 says we'll be with Jesus. Look, and to Jesus. The 266th Pope was recognized today, Pope Francis from Argentina. I watched it. It was historic. It was stirring. <clears throat> His term is vicar of Christ, representative of Christ on earth. There were thousands of people at St. Peter's Square, a very cloudy, rainy, cold occasion, waiting, waiting to see the revelation of the vicar of Christ on earth. Think of it what you may. It just made me think, if that's the enthusiasm for the so-called vicar of Christ, what's your enthusiasm level for the Christ? <clears throat> I'm going to see the one who in the power of his word could calm waves and seas. I've never been in a room with someone with that capacity. Have you? I'm going to stand in the presence with the one who had the capacity to say to disease, be gone. I'm going to be in the, in the room with the one who could walk on water. I've never seen that. I've never been with some. I'm going to be the, uh, uh, with the one who knows people's thoughts before they even verbalize them. Uh. I'm going to be in the presence of the one who could multiply mere morsels of bread and fish and feed a multitude. I'm going to be in the presence of the one who touched those labeled untouchable by everyone else. I'm going to be in the presence of the one. This is overwhelming. Who was murdered for me. and then beat up on death by rising above it. I have never been in the presence of one like that. <laughs> Heavenly Jerusalem. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Moses was the mediator of the covenant at Mount Sinai. Moses mediated it. <clears throat> And that covenant was meant to persuade us of our sin. Jesus is the mediator of a far better covenant, a covenant meant to persuade us of his mercy and grace. So I lived in Baton Rouge for a while. And I had the privilege of being a pastor of uh, Estruma Baptist Church. Some of the most wonderful people like you, just wonderful, just like you, great people. And it was a Saturday about 3 o'clock. And I decided I wanted to go out for a walk, kind of collect my thoughts, pray, get ready for Sunday. Um, so I decided to find a solitary place in a wooded area in East Baton Rouge Parish. 
I don't know if you know about East Baton Rouge Parish. It's a beautiful place. I went out into the woods. It was hot and all the rest. It's South Louisiana, you know. And I went out there about 3 o'clock. Figured I'd spend an hour or two, collect myself, be ready for Sunday. Didn't quite go that way. I got um, rerouted in the woods. Lost? Oh, come on. Rerouted. That's all. I didn't panic. Didn't cry. Maybe a little. I found it kind of amusing. And I started walking, trying this direction, trying that. Wow. I was finding my lostness accentuated every step I took. I was getting nowhere fast. I was totally disoriented. Saw no signs, no nothing, I, no roads. Where am I? And this thing flashed in front of me. I, I could see it. The headline in the, had a newspaper called The Advocate over there in Baton Rouge. Local Baptist pastor. Little Jewish one. <laughs> this shouldn't have happened to him because his people spent so much time wandering in the wilderness. Nonetheless, apparently, he's lost in the wilderness. <laughs> this wonderful congregation showed up for church on Sunday, and he was noticeable by his absence. So they played a tape of Dr. John Morgan instead. <laughs> I was really lost. I started out at three. It was getting to be five, getting to be six. It's getting dark. I'm in trouble. I'm getting caught up, cut up by briars and all this kind of stuff. And after about four hours of this, no cell phone. Why don't you use your cell phone? Because I left it home. I didn't want to lose it in the woods. <laughs> no nothing. No water, no cell phone, no nothing. Just knucklehead little guy. After about four hours of this, I find my way into a housing subdivision somewhere, I think, in the United States. <laughs> but it was unrecognizable to me. I'm still lost. And then a car pulls up alongside of me. And there's a young guy in it. Real young. I recognized him. He was in uh, our youth group at Estrema Baptist Church. He said, hey, pastor, are you lost? And I said, as I was thinking, I can't tell him I'm lost. I'm his pastor. I'm supposed to be his guide. He's like a teenage kid. I can't be lost. He's lost. <laughs> but I couldn't do it. So I said, yes, please help me. I beg you. Listen to me. I could get mad at the woods. I could blame it on the forest. But it had nothing to do with it. It was my own flawed sense of direction. 
My Woods experience conjured up such a hunger to be found, to be rescued, to be saved. I hated it. I wish I didn't have to go through it, but it accentuated in me an awareness of the fact that I am directionally challenged. Yeah, I'm lost. I need to be rescued. And I was so desperate that at that point, I accepted deliverance even from the most unlikely party, a teenage kid. You have to go through Mount Sinai before you get to Mount Zion. But don't stay at Mount Sinai. So I want to ask you this question. Where are you living? Where are you camped out at? Is it Mount Sinai or is it Mount Zion? Look, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. His sprinkled blood speaks. Look, there's that word better. That's why we call this the letter of better. His sprinkled blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Abel was murdered by his brother. And God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me. Abel's blood cried out for justice and vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out with mercy and grace. Jesus' blood is better than all the blood of bulls and goats Jesus' blood is better than yours. But your blood is the price to be paid if you camp out at Mount Sinai and refuse to move on. Get an appreciation of your lostness and of your sin. Now move on to the mountain of grace. Move on to the mount of salvation. Move on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do, you are already a member of the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven and who will one day worship Almighty God with myriads of angels. And maybe then, as now, we'll sing, What can wash away my sin? Lord Jesus, that's not just the song. That is biblical truth. Oh, God, the law, yours, is good. But it cannot wash away our sin. It only reveals it. Now, we thank you for that ministry. You have defined for us quite clearly what our nature is like. We cannot compare ourselves one to another, but we compare ourselves to you, and when we do, we fall short. You told us this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Oh, God, we want to pass through Mount Sinai now to Mount Zion, the place of sacrifice and of grace and of forgiveness and of pardon and of the shed blood of you, Lord Jesus, the perfect, unblemished, sinless one who says to us, I will cast all your law-breaking sins Behind my back, will you let me? Oh, God, let it not be said of even one here tonight that Mount Sinai defines their life more than Mount Zion. Make us to be people of Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>